I invented the Super Soaker originally in 82, actually when I was at JPL on the Galileo project initially. My first idea was that I want to set up a business and go into production of this thing and have my own company. And so I went and talked to some injection molding companies that could make the components right. I actually took a detailed design, I had the detailed drawings and everything all laid out and went through all the parts and components and came back and said, well, okay, it's going to cost $200,000 to get the first thousand guns off the production line. Yeah. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I was an officer in the military. I didn't have $200,000. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin, and over the last 20 years, I brought more than 500 companies across the globe to market with my strategic PR agency in Silicon Valley. So I know a thing or two about a great story. On this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes with visionaries from an array of industries and philosophies who are shaping our future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. When we invited Dr. Lonnie Johnson to Before It Happened, we knew we were going to have a blast. We couldn't wait to find out about building rockets for NASA, his stealth bomber project at the famed Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and of course, the blast that made him famous, his hit invention of the Super Soaker water gun. What we didn't know is that we were in for a couple of big surprises. The Super Soaker was the result of a happy accident that came about when Lonnie was leak testing a heat pump. A burst of water shot across the room, and he immediately thought, hey, this would make a great squirt gun. His first prototype for the Super Soaker combined PVC pipe, plexiglass, and an empty two-liter plastic soda bottle. By 1991, just two years after licensing the invention to Laramie Toys, later acquired by Hasbro, the Super Soaker had sold over $200 million and was on its way to becoming one of the best-selling toys of all time. Lonnie was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2015 and has published over 250 patents to date. He was also inducted into both the Black Inventors Hall of Fame and the Black Entrepreneurs Hall of Fame by the Black Excellence Alliance in 2021. The other thing we were surprised to learn was Lonnie's backstory as an African-American coming of age in the civil rights era. Throughout his life, even as he racked up inventions and professional accolades, during a lifetime of relentless innovation, he struggled to gain the trust of his peers and had to work even harder to prove his worth in an industry where he was an outsider. Let's go back to where it all started for Lonnie growing up in the Deep South in Mobile, Alabama. I grew up in the 60s. That's when I was in grade school and high school in the 60s. And that was the heart of the civil rights movement. So I was obviously very in tune to what was going on in the environment because during that time, you know, segregation was legal and discrimination was legal. And so there were certain things that I knew I couldn't do. And how did your parents, I mean, I'm a parent and as a parent, I mean, those are the type of things you can't really temper from your children. So how did your parents nurture you and give you the tools to thrive in that type of scenario? You know, what's interesting about that, first off, the high school was segregated so all of our teachers were black when we had teachers who really cared about us 
and were really committed to and really understood the challenges that we faced as we grew up. And so they wanted to make sure that they prepared us well. It was more, more like an isolated cocoon, if you will, where we were sheltered from a lot of the things that went on in the environment. Even in our neighborhoods, you know, only the time we would see whites in our neighborhood was when they were passing through or coming in because they were up to no good. <laughs> I can remember as a child, we used to play Foursquare and other games, ball games, t-ball in the uh, streets in front of our house in our neighborhood. Some neighborhood kids would just get together, we'd play in the street out front. This idea of when we would see a police car, we would literally all scatter, run, and hide just instinctively because we just didn't trust the police. Never thought anything of it. It was just a way of life, if you will. And so I didn't see it at that time as uh, something that was anything more serious than any other danger that one would face. You just have to be careful. So our parents taught us what we could and couldn't do and taught us to remain in our place so we would not have ourselves destroyed. What were your family values? My um, father was an assistant superintendent in our Sunday school, and he was a deacon in our church. We were in Sunday school every Sunday. Saturday nights, we were polishing shoes and getting ready for church the next morning. My father was a great role model. He had served in World War II in the Army, and he had a stable job when he came back. He worked at Brooklyn Air Force Base as a driver, as a painter initially, but then he got sick and then he worked as a driver. So, you know, there were six of us. I had five siblings. And my father raised us all. He remained there and he was always there until, uh, until he died, in fact, which was after I became an adult. So, you know, I certainly understanding what he was dealing with in hindsight, I can't say enough about the level of respect and appreciation I have for him. I did not finish high school, but I learned a number of things in the Army. He was old school, self-taught. He taught me how to repair things around the house. I gave him my first lesson in electrical circuits, in fact. Wow. I was always there when he was working on something. It was installing a new appliance, a bathtub, or repairing lamps and things like that. And what about your mom? Mom was a stay-at-home mom until high school, I think around 11th grade or so. She started taking some classes. She did finish high school. And she, when we were in about the 11th grade, she went back to school and learned to be a nurse's aide. So then she started working outside the home as we were older. So, you know, my mother's from Arkansas. And it's interesting because her family left in, in the era that you were describing just because they didn't tolerated anymore. And they moved out way out west to California. So I only know stories from my mother and then a lot through documentary pictures and, and history. And it was a pretty challenging time. Yeah, no question about it. But you know, the I often think, and I talk about this sometimes, how during the civil rights movement, when Martin Luther King came on the scene, I think America was fortunate that he came on the scene because at that point, Black people were really angry. There were riots all over the country, and it was nothing like anything we've seen recently. You know, the National Guards were in the street all over the country. There were fires and burning and looting and destruction. And Martin came in with his nonviolent movement and taught people to, on both sides, to see each other as human beings. If he had not shown up when he did, I, I wonder if we couldn't, could have been plunged into a 
cultural war, if you will, within this country because, you know, black people had had enough. It also defines what was happening in the era in which you were becoming a young man, right? And and instead that empowerment to persevere. So you're in high school, you take all these extra courses, and then you go to university and you stay in Alabama and you go to a very prestigious legacy school. Just talk about how you, like when you entered into the university now, pursuing your mechanical engineering degree, talk us through like what it first felt like for you to have this new gateway, these doors open for you. It's interesting, you know, the um, transitioning college, I, you know, I only require, well, applied to one school and that was Tuskegee. And in hindsight, it seemed kind of, why did I do that? But it didn't dawn on me to do anything different. I was the first kid in my family to go to college. And I had built this robot in high school, fully remote control robot called Linux. He was very tall, about three feet tall or so. And it was actually a remote control and using mechanical decoders and things like that and other things. But in any case, uh, the Junior Engineering Technical Society sponsored a competition at the University of Alabama and it was hosted by the School of Engineering there. And it was a regional, you know, Southeast U.S. regional. So there were kids from all over the Southeastern states. Linux won first place in 1968, which, and we were the only black kids represented. That was a huge, huge moral victory for me personally. And of course, building that robot and achieving that success had a very significant impact on my self-esteem and my impression of what I could do. But during the whole time we were there, even after winning first place and impressing the judges. The Dean of Engineering, who was hosting the event and was there, never asked me about my grades, expressed any interest in my attending the University of Alabama. The judges in that competition were all judges from industry. And fortunately, they were objective in evaluating the interest. So, you know, I attended Tuskegee on a math scholarship because the Dean of Math came down to my high school and on a recruiting trip. And um, based on my SAT scores, he uh, wanted to interview me and he offered me a scholarship. So that's how I ended up going to Tuskegee. It's a great experience academically and socially. You know, I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed my time there. In fact, Lionel Rich and the Commodores had gotten together the year before I arrived at Tuskegee. And they got gotten together on, on a uh, freshman talent show. And so while there, I watched them mature and evolve and become more and more sophisticated over the years. And so they, they would leave campus, they come back, and every now and then they'd do a show. And the show was always at another level, which was really, really cool. And I actually did a lighting system for them because they were still playing in the dark at that time and in nightclubs. And I designed a lighting system that was hooked to the drums and had responded to the sound and everything. It was really cool. How did you get that gig? Did you just approach them and that they needed? Well, someone, a friend, actually a mutual friend, approached me and said, Lonnie, you know, the guys are playing in the dark in a lot of nightclubs and they need some lights. Could you do something? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I designed the system. And it was portable and they, could, they carried it around. In fact, they even took it to, they did a gig in Iran. It was one of the gigs they took these lighting systems. Wow. They actually offered to take me on the road and do tours with them. And I said, no, I don't think I want to be a roadie. I want to stay here and finish <laughs> my, get my engineering degree. So that was the right decision for me. Well, that would have been a whole different story. You go on the road and you become the engineering road manager. You might not have gone on to do the next three things that we're going to talk about. So when you're in university, were you when you're 
your robot product and your evaluation was by industry, you know, people, professional, well, no, this their was, experience. That, that was the University of Alabama where that happened. When I got to Tuskegee, I actually did start working on my robot again. I wanted to do Linux 2 and upgrade them and everything, but the academics became, and the fun time in college became distraction. <laughs> uh, the robot didn't go to school with you then? No, no, no. He stayed in Mobile. Parts of him did, but I didn't work on him again. I ended up building a stereo system. It was second to none, and we had a lot of parties. <laughs> but in any case, that was one of my projects that I did in college. But for the most part, you know, I was focused on academics. I had work study and was a teaching assistant for laboratories and things like that. Employed at one point as a, on, a, on a research project as a research assistant. So I kind of worked my way through a series of loans and work-study. You know, that's how I got through school. And scholarships, of course. At that time, also, when I first went to Tuskegee, freshman ROTC was a requirement. The draft was still going on. The Vietnam War was still going on. And I decided if I was going to go and get, go into the military, I wanted to go in as an officer. So I enrolled in ROTC and remained in ROTC even after the draft ended and received ROTC scholarships as well. So it was a number of things, combination of work-study scholarships and loans, that, and of course, whatever help our parents could provide. And you were not drafted. You went into the Air Force after graduation, right? Right. After I graduated, I got my commission, and then I got an educational delay so I could work on my master's degree. Right. So was there a professor or professors at the university that or additional inspiration or guidance that you kind of look to to help shape your career? <laughs> For the most part, they were demanding. And I remember when I was in grad school, a teacher who taught me physics, nuclear reactor design, because I was getting a degree in nuclear engineering. And if you wrote a paper or did, you know, write a report that was not up to par. He literally had a bullshit stamp. He would stamp it red bullshit and send it back to you. <laughs> wow. I've never had that. I never had one of those, but that's, I mean, it gets straight to the point, right? So you, you go off to the Air Force. Your father was a World War II vet. I mean, did that was that some of your inspiration was to be selective and where you could go versus being told where you could go through the draft? What inspired that? Right. Well, the Air Force made more sense to me because it was more technical. My primary motivation was not getting drafted and ended up in, in Vietnam getting shot or something. And, and I thought that I had a lot more to offer technical skills and things like that where I could make a difference that way. And so... This was during the civil rights movement, and so serving in the military was not seen as something to, to aspire to, if I can say it that way, because you know, we were more concerned about being treated like citizens and like human beings than we all were about fighting and defending a country that was not being kind to us. But I, I think it's important to point out, before I went into the military, I actually got a job at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So as a nuclear engineer... I graduated early, and I had not been called active duty, so I took a job at Oak Ridge National Lab as a nuclear engineer designing high-temperature gas-cooled reactor modeling, you know, coming up with developing computer codes that could simulate the performance of the reactor under certain conditions. And there, there was a co-worker who also had a master's in nuclear engineering, and he had graduated from Penn State. He was my counterpart. He was white. 
And we were paired together to work on a couple of projects. And I found that my education, the things I had been exposed to, were things that I found myself doing much better than he did. In fact, he got to the point where he was hiding information, <laughs> trying to keep me in the dark about certain things because he was having trouble keeping up. So I felt that my education in Tuskegee had served me very well. Of course, that was a question that I had on my mind when, you know, when I got in, into a situation with someone from a majority school, or particularly an Ivy League school, you know, how would my education stack up? And I found that it was, I was very well prepared. So one of the projects that you worked on is the Stealth Bomber Project. Right. How did that come to you? You're in, what, at what point are you in the Air Force? So that was the second tour when I was at SAC headquarters. I had a project at what they call an advocacy officer, meaning that I had a project and system that I would advocate funding for. And so I would go to the Pentagon, brief people and describe the system, expand the concept of it, coming up with designs and things like that. But in any case, it was a space-based system. That was an experience. The V2 was fascinating to me. You know, it was still being under development. We were setting up the facility to do the flight testing at Edwards Air Force Base. We were building the hangars. We would tour Northrop, review the progress on the plane, look at different features. And it was just fascinating as hell because going to the cockpit, it reminded me of being on the USS Enterprise Star Trek because you remember how Scotty could pull up the ship diagram and it would tell you where the problem is. You literally had screens on the on the V2 that could pull up any subsystem and you could look and see where the problems were. <laughs> it was wow. really <laughs> it's a very sophisticated, very fascinated. But, but you knew the magnitude of what it is that you're working on. I mean, this had to have been like a skunk works project totally under wraps, right? I oh, mean, yeah. Was... I, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell my wife, family, anybody what I was working on during the day. It was totally top secret. What did you think when you saw the end product. You know, by then, I would worked on the Voyager project. I worked on the Galileo project. I actually got an invention on Galileo that went to Jupiter. And one of these things that my fellow engineers said wouldn't work before I got to JPL. When I got to JPL and got involved and then understood the problem and came up with a solution and had fellow engineers say, oh, that won't work, you know, and got it working. I actually had people come up and apologize to me after the fact <laughs> because of the things they were saying behind my back, some of which I still don't know. They didn't believe that the project would take off? They didn't understand the technology and the, the circuitry well enough to know that it would that it could work. Uh, you know, I've had experiences <laughs> where I've presented ideas and People that literally jumped up in the room, how dare you come in and claim you could do such a thing and storm out, you know. I mean, it's, I, I, at one point, I had a chief master sergeant who was the highest rank you could achieve as an enlisted guy. He became a good friend. He, he nicknamed me the Black Magicker. So wow. some of the <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about the Galileo Project? Because sure. 1989, the Galileo, you know, the first robotic space probe, right? I mean... Well, not the first one. Not the Plain first? They're all robots. I mean, they're robot-controlled, they're spacecraft, they're out there doing, taking science data and relaying it back. And gotcha. Galileo, I was a power systems engineer on Galileo, so I was responsible for the nuclear power sources, which spacecraft going away from the sun, you can't use solar cells, so they use these 
we like to talk thermoelectric generators to generate power. So I was responsible for integrating those on the spacecraft, allocating power to all the subsystems, including the computer and all the science instruments and managing that, doing simulation analysis, looking at various mission scenarios to make sure that each thing that the spacecraft had to do, there was enough power to accomplish it. And then allocating, you know, budgeting the power to various systems. So when someone needed more power, I was the guy that they had to come to and, and of course, we would negotiate on whether or not they would get more power or they would have to change the design to stay within their constraints and limits so that we would be able to accomplish the mission with what was available on the spacecraft. If there was a short circuit on the spacecraft, then the power supply would go down. Just kind of think of a fuse blowing in your house and all power is lost. And then so after that, if the power short circuit did clear itself and then all of a sudden power came back up, the spacecraft, the computer memory would have been wiped blank and there would be no, the spacecraft would be sitting there dumb and with no programming and no idea what to do. Wouldn't even know it's a spacecraft. So there'd be no memory of programming. So my challenge was to come up with a circuit that would prevent that from happening, to make sure that if there was a massive short circuit failure on the spacecraft, that power to the spacecraft memories would remain. And that was one that people were saying, oh, that'll never work. And they apparently said some things behind my back that one guy came up to me and apologized. And I was just want to say, I'm sorry for some of the things I said about you, your idea. And I said, well, what did you say, Pete? Oh, never mind. <laughs> never, <laughs> to this day, I have no idea what he was saying. <laughs> well, I imagine the teams I'm doing this were pretty massive, right? Were you at? Kennedy Space Center when the... No, this was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. So that's where the spacecraft's built. So, you know, this is a scenario where, as a design engineer, as a design, and I'm on the systems engineering team, so we're pulling the whole spacecraft system together. So the components literally being built all over the world. So everybody's building these parts, and then when they deliver them to JPL, and this is going on over a period of several years, these parts are being, components are being built. It's kind of like put building a Lego set, if you will. Everything has to fit. All the bolts have to be in the right place. Everything, the signals have to be right. And so it's all done on paper before it's delivered. And then when it's delivered, of course, it has to fit together and you end up with a spacecraft. So that was that was the job as a systems engineer, making sure everything would come together properly. So when you see the Atlantis going to take off and you're part of this, I mean, how did that feel? Did you feel like you were part of making history as well? Or was it just on to the I, next one? <laughs> well, you know, there, there are moral victories, if you will, personal victories that I, I look at. You know, yeah, it's kind of like on to the next one. But, I, you know, all of, I just started talking about this because by the time I got to the stealth bomber, you know, I worked on some of the most challenging systems that the country was developing at the time, most advanced technology systems. And I was ready for a new challenge. And but I wanted to do some do my own thing. I wanted to have some projects where I individually could make a difference. That was my motivation. So let's talk about that era. Because I can tell already, just from our conversation, you like to have fun. And the curiosity factor of you, you described when you were a child tinkering and making things, and then your robot that ends up winning the showcase. Was this your period that you just said, I want, I want to like have a little bit more fun and have more control? Well, you know, I invented the Super Soaker originally. Actually, when I was at JPL on the Galileo project initially, that was in 82. That was the year I moved back and went back into the Air Force. I didn't really build the water gun until I 
went back into the Air Force in Omaha and I got my moved in, got my house all set up and everything. Then once the shop was set up, then I started building the first gun. The idea of a high performance water gun I was motivated to design it rather by I was working on a heat pump that would use water to work into it instead of free on it. So I made some nozzles and I had these nozzles, small nozzles hooked up to the bathroom sink. And I shot this stream of water across the bathroom. And I thought, geez, a high-performance water gun would be a lot of fun. So at that point, I decided to put that aside and start designing a high-performance water gun. So I wanted to have a gun that a small kid could operate and get to really high pressure. And that would hold a lot of water. So I, because of my education as a mechanical engineer, I knew what things I needed to do in order to, to make that happen. So I put in all the design features that the um, you know, large full cross section so I wouldn't have a lot of pressure loss with the water flowing inside the tubes and the gun and small diameter pumps so that a small kid could get it to really high pressure, nice size nozzles so I get a big enough stream that the stream could hold together for some distance. Just a number of engineering features, if you will, to get high performance. But for the first gun, it took a few weeks to build all the components and then put it together. So I, it, I had put all these design features in, but it wasn't until I actually got it all together and shot it for the first time that I really knew it was, I had achieved my objective and the magic indeed was there. And were you thinking, like, I mean, this is going to be this cool, fun, you know, just oh, yeah. toy yeah, right. for adults? Because <laughs> adults like it as much as kids do. No, I thought it was going to be a kid's toy, and I thought that I'd make enough money on it to be able to start my own business and develop some other inventions and things like that. I didn't didn't expect it to be the huge success that it was. I knew it would be successful because I had played with the prototypes. I'd let some friends play with it. I'd taken to parties while I was in the Air Force. Just idea. I mean, if I said I'm going to take a PCV pipe and a soda bottle and some water and I'm going to turn it into this really cool, fun thing, <laughs> you know, that has become a super soaker that I remember when it came out. It was like people talk about the summer of love. I remember the summer of super soaker and I was in college and we had these things. And you had talked about the fun that you had on college campus. Well, in California, at UC Berkeley, we were loaded with these things. <laughs> and I remember, like, looking, you know, we were, we were to look for them, and every, every, they were sold out everywhere. So, let's go back to this kind of, this idea that you had. Like, what was the actual, you know, you had a couple, you know, different thoughts, you know, this evolution, but you finally meet the Laramie folks and what did they do to help bring this to fruition for you well it turned it into a product so the story of super soaker i mentioned that i got the idea in 82 there are a number of false starts talking to different companies my first idea was that i want to set up a business and go into production of this thing and have my own company and so i went and talked to some injection molding companies that can make the components right and make the plastic parts and so I actually took a detailed design and actually had sculptured a balsa wood model of what the thing is. So I had a 3D model of it. I had the detailed drawings and everything all laid out in terms of what was needed to make it work. And he went through all the parts and components and came back and said, well, okay, it's going to cost you know $200,000 to get the first thousand guns off the production line. Yeah. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> 
First, I was an officer in the military. I didn't have $200,000. And it was at that point there was some, I decided there were some things I didn't understand. And, and you know, I would look at toys in, in the stores and they were no more complicated than my gun, but they didn't cost $200,000 a piece. And so I decided that I would do a licensing deal because I felt that, you know, I learned something from the licensing deal and then I can use that knowledge for my next project because I didn't feel that I would be without a good invention. I thought I'd always come up with ideas. I kind of take that for granted, in fact. And so that's when the whole effort to try and license started. So a number of false starts in that regard also. One company went bankrupt that I was working with. The owner sold the company and bought it back and took it. found myself starting all over with each iteration with a new product, outside inventor relations kind of person, a business person. One, another company went bankrupt. One company had an East Coast and West Coast model shop. They didn't get along. They were constantly fighting each other. And it was just one chaos after another. And finally, um, in 89 or seven years later, those things had all failed and gone by the wayside. So this is when I decided to go to New York to Toy Fair and literally walk this, the halls and looking for someone to talk to about my idea. I didn't take a model gun with me, but I did meet the people at Laramie and they said, well, we can't really review products now. And if you're ever in Philadelphia, come by and see us. We'll be happy to talk to you. So as I was leaving, you know, this was the vice president of the company, Al Davis. He looked up at me and said, oh, by the way, don't make a special trip. (laughs) (laughs) Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Lisa Lindahl, another Hall of Famer who invented the world's first sports bra in the 1970s, launching a $100 million industry. I was the generation that we were out. It was glorious Steinem and we were burning our bras, if not literally, certainly metaphorically, because bras were designed to support how we were supposed to look. In the 50s, bras made your breasts very pointy. In the 1920s, women would put bandages around their breasts because the little boy look was in. So breast support and bras were all about creating a fashion look. They were not about a woman's comfort or support or function at all, unless it was a nursing bra. If it was a nursing bra, well, then it was about function. But other than that, no. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So I went and looked on eBay recently and I saw one of the original ones that sold for 10 bucks. It's like 49 up to $80. There was bids going on. People are seeking the, you know, the original nostalgic one that they had when they were kids or they didn't have when they were kids. So what do you think is the real mystique behind the super soaker? And like now you're, you know, just impacting you know, all your, your prior career has been these big milestone historic things, but you created an entirely new industry now. Toy war guns, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, it, were you just like, you know, I mean, you were on a mission, but when it actually happened and you, there's been a, over a billion sold? 
you know, what's funny about that, call it arrogance, if you will, but when Super Soaker was successful, I decided I want two things. I want to be the king of all toy guns, and I also had this idea that I want to prove that it's not just luck and that lightning can strike it one in the same place more than once. So I started working on Nerf Dark Guns, and Nerf Dark Guns were already on the market, but I started designing guns that were much better than what Hasbro had at the time. And I designed a whole line of guns, small ones, large ones, medium size, a whole product line, and presented them to Hasbro. When they saw my fully automatic submachine gun that rapid-fired Nerf, they were like blown away. And they did a deal with me, and my product line under Nerf came in strike. And InStrike was the number one and they had somewhere 80%, if not higher, of their Nerf guns were InStrike at that time. And so I became the king of all toy guns. So, yeah, it was kind of par for the course. I was, and even doing Super Soaker success for the most part, I was busy working on other ideas and inventions and really, I think, only now beginning to realize how much joy people had and, and what a big hit it was. So how do you inspire, because I'm, I'm a big advocate of STEM, and, and I've read you are too, and, you, and you're involved in, in competitions with younger, uh, the next generation, but how do you inspire the next generation to take on this type of responsibility that you're leading and to get degrees in math and science and engineering? How are you currently doing that, and, and what should the rest of us be doing? Because I, I think you know, it's so important. And we've had a, le- a number of guests that have, you know, very hands-on with kids. But what are you currently doing? You know, I work with kids. We have a program called you know, Johnson STEM, STEM Activity Center, JSAC. And basically the idea is to do for them what worked for me. <laughs> there are a couple of things. You know, one, have the kids ex- experience success. And when you experience success, you want to continued experience success. It becomes addictive and you start working to continue experience that. But basically getting involved in technology, engineering, and enjoying it before it becomes something that you're afraid of. Because so, somehow people communicate just the idea that that's hard, too hard, you shouldn't go in that direction. And you're doing it before that kind of external influence impacts you is, I think, very, very important. Because once they experience success, you know, that, that's internal. My mother used to tell me, you know, I remember going home and complaining about a grade that my teacher would give me. And she would look at me and say, the grade is not what this is all about. This is about what goes in your head, what you, what you learn. And nobody can take that away from you. Only God can take that away. That is yours once you get the knowledge. And so, you know, the idea of having kids experience success and internalizing this idea and self-confidence that they can do things is extremely, extremely important. And basically creating those environments and opportunities for that to happen. So you took us through like this 60-year kind of journey. You know, we started in the 60s and talking about what was happening and when you were young and then going into high school and college and the civil rights and and all the social and just things that were happening. But what I gather is through your career is that you've broken down a lot of barriers and opened opportunities, not just for yourself, but for others. 
by making facilitating and, and, and making change in all these projects. Do you feel that you've done that in, in your career is just showing leading by example and being able to lead these projects that, you know, what era that you were in back in the 60s? I mean, it's still really relevant and it matters, right? But do you feel that you quietly, with the with the impact that you've made for each one of these big accolades from the from you know the social impact that you've made with the super soaker just for people to chill out and have fun all the way to the seriousness of this of the Galileo project and and the the stealth project i mean the respect is the is the you know a word that i just in talking to you are just going my goodness you have done so much well i've, I've been at it a while <laughs> and you're having you fun know. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when I would be the only person of color in the room, uh, and there were times when people made fun of me and and thrown me into situations where expectations were low. uh, I've made a huge difference. I feel very good saying. So I do feel like I've opened the doors, if you will, and and, and opened some some eyes in terms of people's expectations. Hopefully, uh, people will be a little less prejudiced or prejudgmental about people based on their appearance. Well, I always say that we need more acceptance and not expectance, right? Yeah, that's an ongoing battle, unfortunately. It seems like it's frustrating that we fight those battles over and over again. And it seems like there's just this force that just will not yield. And it's just a, a negative thing that maybe we're just cursed with as human beings, that the idea that if someone looks different, they must be different. And it can't be my equal if they're different. So we're going to see something big next in the coming out of the the, the Johnson. Well, yeah, I think I think both the energy technologies that I'm developing, as well as this other advancing, even more advanced energy technology, will make a huge difference in the world. I mean, think of um, think of eliminating the need for nuclear reactors, fossil fuels, and even windmills and solar cells, and just having these things small bumps that stick up out of the ground is providing electricity for everybody. It'd be really cool and passive. I've been very focused on my work and the challenges that I've committed myself to, to address. And like I said, I, you know, if we can solve or even make a significant contribution towards solving the environmental challenges that we're facing, you know, that there are a lot of people who in the scientific community who are literally afraid of how bad things can get. And these are very knowledgeable people. And I don't think, obviously, the larger population is not as tuned in, certainly not as sensitive to the uh, downside of of the path that we're on. But as an engineer and understanding the fact that this ecosystem is like, think think of a large ship moving in a certain direction. And you start heading toward an iceberg, and you turn the rudder to avoid it, but your ship takes a long time to turn. If you saw the iceberg too late, you're liable to run into it because the ship doesn't turn immediately. And certainly the, the transition that the world is going through now is not something that's going to change overnight. Even if we could stop emitting CO2 tomorrow, the current situation will probably get a little bit worse before it turns around and start getting better, even if we could put brakes on immediately. So there are serious concerns about how bad things could get before they start getting better. 
On this show, we featured lots of inspiring role models and innovators, but possibly none so impressive as Dr. Lonnie Johnson. Not just because he beat the odds to become one of the most prolific inventors alive today, but because he's now leading a generation of young people to pursue careers in STEM. I also don't think it's an accident that two legends crossed paths earlier in their careers. In 2022, Lionel Richie was inducted into the Museum of Rock and Roll, and Dr. Lonnie was inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame. Two legends who found their place in the stars. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.